Welcome to the chorus of welcomes. My name's Phil Pearson. I'm the ministry director here at St. Pete's, and I was just chatting with someone new, and they asked, what does the ministry director do? And I said, that's a good question. I'm learning that still, but we're almost at a year, which is wild. Uh, in August, I'll be working here for a year. But anyways, I want to start off with a story that will, in the long run, connect to what I'm saying. Um, my wife, Deandra, when, when her and I were first dating, at one point she came over to my house um, and she came into the kitchen and on the kitchen there was a dozen pineapples. A strange and odd sight. We only have four people that are in my family of origin um, and it was just me and my mom and my dad living at home and so Dee came over and said, do you guys eat a lot of pineapple? And I was like, no, why? And she's like, well, there's 12 pineapples here. And I was like, oh, that's a good question. And, and a few minutes later, she's like, but, but why are they here? And I was like, oh, I don't know. My dad probably bought a dozen pineapples. And she's like, but why? And I was like, well, I don't know. So my dad, a few minutes later, came down and he goes, did you see all the pineapples? And we're like, yeah. He goes, and I was like, why did you buy so many? He goes, they were all on sale. A dollar a pineapple. I couldn't not buy them. And Dee was like, but will you eat 12 pineapples in a week? And he's like, no. But, but they were on sale. I could not buy them, so I'll give them away. So by the way, do you like go home with some pineapples to your family? So over the course of the week, people would come over, and Dad would go, do you want a pineapple? And just like give them away regularly. And, and it was just an odd, random sight. Dee went home with three pineapples to her family, and that was it. And, and the thing to know about my dad is like his love language is buying you something on sale. Like, there are other cultures where it's like, let me tell you how much money I spent on you, where my dad is like, let me tell you how much money I didn't spend on you. You'll be having, like, a wonderful family dinner, like, friends and guests over, and every, it's like a beautiful steak dinner. People think my dad spent a lot of money on the dinner. He goes, guess how much your steak was? And, and we're like, I don't know, like, probably $15. He goes, $4. It was its last day on the shelf. I bought 20 And it's like, then you'll open up the freezer and the cold cellar, and it's just, filled with an abundance of things. And, and my wife was like, is your dad a hoarder? I was like, no, no, no. He just loves a good sale. Like a good Saturday is going to three separate grocery stores across the city all to buy sale items. And so a few years into our marriage, there was a moment of horror for Dee. I went to the grocery store and I came back with a dozen bags of potato chips. <laughs> and Dee was like, why did you buy a dozen bags of potato chips? I was like, they were each only a dollar bag. I couldn't not buy them. She's like, but they're not even good potato chips. Like, you bought no name from no frills. Of course they're a dollar. She's like, why didn't you just buy a couple of bags of Ruffles all dressed, like the best potato chip, if you're ever looking to buy me potato chips. And she's like, just, just buy a, a few of the chip you want. And I was like, but they were only a dollar. I couldn't not buy them. And I wish I took a picture of her face in that moment, because it was horror. Borderline disgust of realizing I had absorbed my father's uh, approach to money and finances, mainly if it's on sale, your boy's going to get it. Like, it's just, it's dangerous. But so I say this, and I'll get to it why. So we're in the middle of a series, uh, a multi-year series through Luke. We're at sermon number 58, and we had been out of it for a while, but we're returning back to it, and we're in Luke chapter 12. And in Luke 12, Jesus is on the road. He's headed to Jerusalem, and he begins teaching about the cost of discipleship, about what it means to truly follow him. And it is a series of very challenging teachings. Over the summer, we are, we've already taught on hypocrisy, but over the rest of the summer, we're going to teach on greed, generosity, pride, worry, senseless death, 
peace, repentance, who is in and who is out, and the cost of following Jesus. And as I said last week, we're going to see Jesus pointing his finger at us often. He's going to challenge us. And especially when it comes to money and our family of origin, what we kind of, the baggage we might bring in when it comes to money, we might get defensive and feel the need to justify ourselves. So I want to echo what I said last week. Be curious instead of being defensive. Let Jesus call us out and ask, why is he teaching us this? What is he really getting at before our guard comes up? Because there were some big things that just came up in that passage, and we're going to explore them today, but I really invite you, lean in and be curious before you're defensive and trying to justify your own way of living. How does that sound? Good? Okay. First ever vocal response. Incredible. Rob, thank you for warming us up with Bub's help. It was wonderful. So uh, let me pray, and then we will dive in. And I'm not going to read the whole passage again because it is a very long passage, but we will move through the whole thing and read it all as we go. So let me pray. Father God, we give thanks just to be a church um, here in Vancouver. Uh, a city marked by wealth and poverty, a city marked with isolation and loneliness, a city marked by um, challenges. And we believe your light shines in even to a city like this. And today, let us hear of your goodness. Let us hear of the beauty of your kingdom. Let us be challenged by it and, and keep our hearts soft and porous, Lord, open to what you have to say. What is in what is in this sermon that is of yours, let it rise up, and what is just me, let it fall away. We lift these things up to you in your name. Amen. So if you're reading in the Gospel of Luke, and, and we encourage you as much as you can, read through the Gospel of Luke with us. And if, if you're going from front to back, when you get to this passage that we're in, 13 to 34, it will feel like a moment of deja vu. Because in the previous story where Jesus taught hypocrisy, the same formula, the same practice happens all over again. So in the previous passage that we were in, and the one right before it, Luke uh, 11, verse 37, Jesus is teaching a crowd, and then he goes for dinner at the Pharisee's house. And the Pharisees watch him wash his hands, and they call him out for how he washed his hands. Because Jesus, he was a row, row, row your boat guy, when the hypocrisies was twice happy birthday, like the proper way to do it. And Jesus was not washing his hands according to the proper customs, and it led to him teaching against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And so he teaches this large teaching to a group of people, and then he turns to his disciples, and he teaches about the sin below the sin. He, he reveals that hypocrisy is dangerous, but it comes out of improper fear, a fear of the crowd instead of a fear of God and a fear of how much God loves us. And so he teaches against that last week. And this week, it's the exact same formula. What happens is a person comes to Jesus and asks a question. It prompts Jesus to teach about a specific sin, namely greed. Then after he tells this story and teaches about sin to the crowd, he then turns to his disciples and he reveals the sin below the sin. And he brings up considering the birds again, this importance of reflecting on God's love in nature. And then he gives us a promise and a set of practices to avoid the sin of greed and the sin below that. So what I want to do today is I want to move through these five sections. The prompt, which is going to be verse 13 to 15. The parable, which is 16 to 20. The problems, the practices, and then end with the promise. 
And I was thinking about it this week. For some reason, if ever you're going to do a letter alliteration in sermons, it's always P's. They're just a very common, helpful letter. So anyways, let's begin with the prompt. Verse 13 to 15. Um, A person comes from the crowd and says to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So there's a large crowd that Jesus is teaching to. And this person comes to Jesus, and he comes to Jesus as a teacher and a rabbi, ready to learn, or or at least so it seems. And the person says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. According to Hebraic law, um, the eldest son received the entire inheritance from their passing father, and it was up to the eldest son whether or not they wanted to be generous and divide the wealth between the family. And it would seem that in this case, the eldest brother is not doing that. So this younger sibling comes to Jesus and and makes a play for the wealth and goes to Jesus and says, weigh on my behalf, command my brother to give. He's asking Jesus to interpret the law for him. And today we would read this and we would say, yeah, Jesus, weigh on his behalf, be equal, Tear down the unjust patriarchal system that only favors the few, especially for those of us that are younger siblings. This is very helpful now that that has been broken, and one day I may receive a bit of an inheritance. But instead, Jesus does something different. He says, man, which is just, I love, it's just a very casual way of saying it. But he says, um, instead of responding to the sibling, Jesus takes a look at the man's heart posture. Because the heart posture seems to be one of control with a hint of greed. Because it's so important to notice this because it may reflect our own heart posture when we come to Jesus. For many of us, when we come to Jesus or to God, we come with our wishes and our desires only. Only a desire to get Jesus to do what we want. But Jesus challenges this man very quickly. He says, who appointed me as a judge or arbiter between you? And this idea was actually very common. Rabbis, teachers of the law, they would interpret the law on behalf of people. They would act as judges for people. But then he uses this moment to flip it on its head, and then he says, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. It's a very odd series of events, but you could summarize it this way. A young sibling comes to Jesus and says, be a judge for me, weigh on my behalf. And Jesus says, okay, you want me to be a judge? I will judge you. There's greed in your heart. And be careful because it may consume you. The younger sibling did not get what they were hoping for in that moment. They got a call out instead of a cash out. And so Jesus says, watch out, be on your guard. There's greed. And he says that same similar thing. Watch out, there's hypocrisy in you in the previous text And so we should lean in because there's this repeating act. And it's interesting that Jesus says, watch out, be on guard against greed and hypocrisy, because it says something about those two things. They are things that are often unnoticed. They can go hidden. One writer, he says, what Jesus never says is watch out, be on guard against adultery, because you know when it's happening. It's hard to not be aware that adultery is occurring, but greed and hypocrisy, they are unseen. They are corrosive and dangerous. They're hard to miss. And so Jesus says, watch out. And then he gives a litmus test to this sibling and to us. Okay, you don't think there's greed in you. Let me tell you a story. And this brings us to the parable. In verse 16, it says this. 
the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Let's stop there for a second because I failed to notice this subtle detail the first five times I read it, and that's exactly what's trying to happen. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. It's the ground that did the work, not the man. You could actually probably more accurately translate this this way. A person of generational wealth and means owned land. And they had a great crop because the weather conditions were perfect. The, the soil was rich with nutrients. And his workers went and gathered the crop. The man did nothing. He simply had ground that yielded an abundant crop. And as being a landowner and farmer, people worked on his behalf. The land did the work, and the man is passive. So the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops, nowhere to put them. And then he follows it up by saying, then... He said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones where I will store my surplus grain and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Live the dream. Now, before we go to the concluding sentence in the story, let's ask a question, and I'd love a show of hands if you guys would be willing. Does this story sound immoral? Show of hands if you think it sounds immoral. Okay, we've got one. Maybe a, okay. Does this story sound any different from our culture? Or your own practices? That's the tell. It hits right there, right? This man's practices don't seem inconsistent with our own approaches to saving and generosity. In fact, he seems smart. He's business savvy. He's got all this grain, but not enough place to store it. So he builds this new place, and now he can sit back, relax, and retire and live the dream. It doesn't seem different than our culture, and I think that's why we often miss this story. Nothing seems strange about it. But our world works this way. We make a ton of money, and we do make a ton of money, and we put it into savings, and we let it grow in high-interest savings accounts, and TFSAs, and stocks, and investments. There's a myth outside of the city of Vancouver that people buy houses. <laughs> and the houses grow in wealth, and it doubles and triples in value. It's an amazing dream to think that it actually could happen one day. Maybe it's a wish that one day you'll win the lottery and, and be able to get a down payment in Vancouver. But the house, it, the house, wow, I just thought, the house yields an abundant crop. Not you. So, are we feeling convicted yet? Because I am. The ending of the story then shocks us because Jesus says this, but God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? God's words should be a shock there. He says, you fool. More accurately, we could translate this, you idiot. That's what it is. You idiot. You're stupid. You have stored all this up for your comfort and pleasure, and you won't even get to enjoy it. See, the challenge is this. The rich man is not doing anything that we would think to be immoral. 
Nothing there is actually a, a signal for greed, but it's the lack that is the important. See, he is not generous. The story never says it, and our flags don't go up. We fail to see the lack of action, which is the sin. Greed could more accurately be described as lacking generosity. And so Jesus essentially says this, you took this and you put it away from the community. You hoarded it all up for yourself. You gave nothing away. Your financial practices have revealed you to be nothing more than a stupid, idiotic, tight-fisted miser. Scrooge, you could say. And my assumption is that for most of us, those words are immediately a challenge. They are an attack on our vision of money, wealth, and the good life. And they are most likely an attack on the approach of our families to wealth, saving, and generosity. We absorb our family backgrounds when it comes to money. Not that our parents weren't generous, but we often pick up the bad habits, not always the good. And so Jesus says, you're wrong. Uh, so we may say to Jesus, no, you're wrong. We want to save for retirement, for our kids, for our grandkids. We want to have bigger barns filled up for rainy days. We want to have money for any problem that comes. We need it. So Jesus tells this story as a heart check. Are you surprised by the lack of generosity? Or even more so, does it frustrate you? Or are you the rich man in the story? If yes, then the challenge is you're living in the wrong direction. I am often living in the wrong direction. We are serving a different kingdom. And i got to be honest that as I prepared this sermon, this was one of the hardest sermons I've had to write in a while because it was so convicting for me. I noticed how tight-fisted and greedy I can be, how lacking in generosity is my base instinct. I noticed myself getting defensive and trying to justify my actions when it came to money. But this, young, this younger sibling and this parable, they reveal to us the problem at work in so many of us. Greed is present, and if we're not aware of it, it will rear its ugly head and have its way in us. We lack generosity. So what do we do with that? Well, then Jesus reveals the sin below the sin, because as I said before, greed is symptomatic. It is smoke to a different fire. So let's look at the problem below the problem. In, in verse 22, Jesus says, therefore, and he says this directly to his disciples. So he tells the crowd, and then he turns to his disciples. Therefore, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or what you will wear. See, that's it. That's the problem. We're worried. We're anxious. And I don't mean in a mental health way. I mean, we just live in an anxious state about when our next paycheck is coming, when our next meal is coming, the clothes we're going to wear. We don't trust God will provide for us. We feel the need to hoard and take and keep. We are not rich to God because we think, what if this is all I'll ever have? What if this is it? What if I won't have enough? Who's looking out for me? See, greed is a secondary sin born out of worry and a lack of trust in God. I won't have enough. God won't provide for me. And so Jesus comes and he says, okay, we've addressed these two sins. Well, what do we do? How do we live against these? 
He provides a number of solutions and antidotes. First is simple and beautiful, and he's told us this before. Consider the birds. Consider the ravens and the wildflowers. Here's Jesus' assignment, okay? Go into a wild field, not a mown lawn, not Van Dusen where it's like well manicured, a wild field or a forest. And look at the lavender. Look at the dandelions. There's not enough dandelion fields in Vancouver. This isn't like an Ontario thing. But fields of yellow dandelions were beautiful, and they're intricate, and they're incredible. And he just says, go and stare at it. They are more beautiful than anything you can make. And they're just beauty for themselves, just because God wanted them to be beautiful. And then while you're staring out at the field and the flowers, look to the sky. Look to the birds just flying around. Look at them eat insects and pick up twigs. Listen to them sing. God loves them. The creator of the entire universe loves chickadees and blue jays and ravens. And ravens is a tell because according to Hebraic law, ravens are an unclean animal. If you touch it, you have to make sure you wash accordingly. So he says, look at wildflowers and ravens reflect on how much God loves them and provides for them and know that you are infinitely more important and loved than the birds. You don't need to worry because God loves you more than the birds. When's the last time you did that? And I love what he says in verse 25. He says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? None of your worrying does anything. And I say that as the the son of a mother who worried and as a person who deeply worries. I wake up just worrying about things. And Jesus is saying, instead of thinking and worrying about other stuff, go worry about a dandelion. Go worry about a sunflower. Go worry and meditate on those other things. And maybe you'll start seeing God's love for you. Reflect on God's goodness and beauty and wonder and generosity at work in all of creation. And remember, God will clothe you. God will provide for you. Rest in that peace. And then he goes, in verse 30, he uses a foil for a moment. He says this beautiful image, wildflowers and birds. And then he says, don't be like the pagans. And the pagans is just a way of saying people that don't believe in God. They have no hope or comfort outside of this life. And that's why they chase the pleasures and joys of this life, because that's all it is for them. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, Phil, that's a nice thought, but we live in the real world. Sure, God clothes the wildflowers and the the fields, but if I'm not looking out for myself, I won't get enough. I won't have enough. And I say that because that's what I was thinking through most of this sermon as I was writing it. As a deep pragmatist and a skeptic and someone who usually sees the worst outcome coming, I fail to see the thousands of little ways that God has provided for me, big and small. I fail to see that the ground produced an abundant harvest, not me. I want to be proud of my work, but I realize it's my work that I'm trying to be proud of, not the generosity God has provided for me. So then Jesus gives another practice, ups the ante. He says, but seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. 
Seek the kingdom. That's the second practice. But what does it mean to seek the kingdom? Well, simple. Seeking the kingdom is pursuing God. It is searching for his love and grace. It is living according to his values. And it is following the Jesus path. And the reason that it will provide for you is beautiful. Because if you seek the kingdom, it will always lead you into a body of believers. Seeking the kingdom can never be done alone. It will always thrust you into a group of other people also seeking the kingdom. A community of love and generosity. In Acts 2, we get a glimpse a a utopic vision for, for just a moment. It says this, All who believed were gathered together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as if as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. See, in Acts, we get this this momentary glimpse, a vision of a brother and sisterhood, of a family at work in the early church, people selling their possessions and providing for each other's needs. Selling possessions is dipping into TFSAs and RRSPs and savings accounts because in the first century, they didn't have savings accounts. They had their physical items. They went and sold their savings to provide for one another. And no one had need. Clothing, check. Food, check. Housing, check. Security, check. Comfort from people around you. And it was done because they were pursuing the kingdom of heaven. See, the early followers of Jesus, they believed that God provides for us so that we can provide for others. The ground produces an abundant harvest so that we can give the harvest away. That is the sin of the rich man. He had an incredible crop and he kept it all for himself and for those Uh, He kept it all for himself, and he didn't give anything away. But if all members of the kingdom, or you could put it another way, if all members of the church collectively were always generous from the abundance of the harvest, no one would be in need. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? I like what Luke writes, what Jesus says more so. Later in Luke, in Luke 17, he says, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. In our midst, between us, you could say. And I'm convinced that the way that God wants to provide for your needs and for my needs is through the kingdom through the church, through the upside-down approach to our wealth and finances, a kingdom of radical love, a church of generosity, a kingdom of grace, a church of rich and poor, a kingdom that breaks down social barriers, a church that protects the poor, the widow, the orphan, the lost, the lonely, the sick, the wounded, those who can't defend themselves, those who can't afford the groceries, those who need help. Clement of Alexandria, an early church father, he has this beautiful passage. He says, if one has money, it is for the sake of his brethren. If he does not have money, he is as cheerful as if he had. And the reason he is as cheerful as if he had is because his brother's wealth is his in the kingdom. This week I was texting with a good friend of mine, and he was talking about how he loves capitalism, and I was talking about the utopic vision of communism in the Christian church, and we were going back and forth. 
And it's this invitation to a completely different way of life. Because this is what it means to store up your treasure in heaven. It is to invest not in stocks or RSPs. It is to invest in your brothers and sisters around you. Providing for them so they can be blessed to do the same. Who thought you were going to come and get such bad financial advice at church this morning? Because it's ridiculous, right? It's a wild and crazy claim. And I'm aware that it sounds like a communistic, utopian pipe dream. And our pragmatic, pessimistic self kicks in and says, it won't actually happen. And I would say, with that attitude, you're right. It's right, right? Like, it's true. If we don't believe it, it will never happen. And we struggle to believe it. The doubt creeps in. Maybe I should just keep a little bit more for myself. And I don't say that as an attack against you. I say it as an attack against me. I need to hear this. But Jesus is so firm. Pursue the kingdom of heaven. And then he gives the truest instruction of how you pursue the kingdom of heaven. And it's infuriating. Sell your possessions. Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. Dip into your savings accounts and give the money away. That is what pursuing the kingdom of heaven comes up again and again. A rich young ruler comes to Jesus one day. He says, I want the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, okay, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor, and there you will find the kingdom of heaven. Following Jesus is great until he talks about your bank account. And I think that the reason that we are told to pursue the kingdom of heaven in this way, by selling our possessions, is that we unburden ourselves from the weight of our own wealth that we are drowning in. And we, there is very different levels of wealth in this church. But we live in Canada, in North America. Wealth is just here for most of us in various ways. But when we sell our possessions, when we sell these things and we give them away and we give to the poor, we are unburdening ourselves of other kingdoms. And maybe you'll challenge this. A defensive nature may kick in and say, well, God only wants a cheerful giver. And I've I love that second like sidestep. It's like, but wait, I'm not cheerful. I shouldn't give. You're right. We're not cheerful givers naturally, right? So how do we become cheerful givers? I'd say the reason we are not cheerful is the claws of greed and worry are in us. And they need to be pulled out. They need to be exercised from us. And the first way is reflecting on the beauty, the love, the trust that God gives to us, the generosity of him through Jesus. And the second is to follow it and to pull the claws out rather viciously to sell your stuff. To give away your abundance and to give to other people. Only when we see that ultimate generosity of the cross can we learn to be generous ourselves. Because when we see all the love God gives, then we can say, I know God will care for me. He loves me more than the birds. He sent his own son to die on my behalf, to give me a key to the kingdom. Jesus' teaching is antithetical to our world and our culture. It is a direct challenge to all the kingdoms we live in. And as I was reflecting on this, I, I went back to Philippians 2. And I know we taught on that earlier, but I can't escape this passage this year. It's been so big for me. In Philippians 2, verse 5 to 7, 
Paul writes, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Jesus had total and absolute power. Jesus had total wealth, and he gave it up in pursuit of inviting you and I into the kingdom. He unburdened himself of the wealth and power for a moment to invite us in, and then he invites us to do the same. And this is good news, but it's hard news. Following Jesus is a great joy, but it will invite all of us, all of ourselves, into a different kingdom, into a different way of living. So, St. Peter's, this can be a challenging and convicting thing, and my goal is not to fill any of us with guilt, but it's to invite us to something, to check our hearts and see that they are often in different places. And I think Jesus is inviting us into something beautiful. In this place here in St. Peter's, in churches across the city, in churches across the world, Jesus is inviting us to an incredible kingdom. But it will take work for the gospel to work itself in us and to become part of the gospel itself. So I have two pieces of homework for you this week. Two pieces, and I really hope you do them. Number one, go to a field. Go to the forest, go to the woods, go somewhere and sit there for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour and consider the birds. Consider the wildflowers. Sit unburdened and reflect on the beauty and wonder of nature. Maybe it's going and watching a sunset or a sunrise. I mean, we live in Vancouver. Drive up the mountain. Stare at the beauty that is here. And then that whole time, say again and again to yourself, God loves me more than this. And if you don't want to do it alone, give me a call. I would love to spend my whole week sitting in fields with people. That would be the greatest pastoral gift of my life. Just back-to-back meetings. What did you do today? I sat in a field. I went and I like picked lavender apart to the very basis. That's all I want to do this week. If you don't want to do it with me, go do it with someone else. If you've got kids, ask someone to watch your kids for the day, for the 20 minutes, for the hour. Send them with someone else and go do it and then do the same for them. But I'm serious. Go reflect on the beauty of nature. We have it in abundance in Vancouver. And then remind yourself, God loves me more than this. The second thing is a little harder. Go into your house. Pick something. It could be records. It could be a gaming console. It could be a table. It could be something you don't need. An abundance. And go sell it. Put it on Facebook Marketplace, on Kijiji, on Craigslist, whatever. Go sell something. And don't keep a dime of it. Give all the money away. I went to a church once and we we were um, doing a missions trip and we needed to make enough money and the pastor just said, go sell your stuff and it was the greatest fundraiser we ever had. You can give it to a charity, you could give it to the church or maybe even give it to a person in need in our church. Because like I said, there are people with very different financial states in our church. There are people very wealthy and there are people that are struggling to pay for rent and groceries. And our church actually has a kingdom responsibility to care for them. 
I would love my Facebook feed to just be filled with people selling stuff and giving away the money. So two things. Consider the birds, the wildflowers. Go unburden yourself of something this week. And it's not because God will love you more. It's not because God will forgive you. It's because you have seen the great generosity at work in the world through God. So let me end with Jesus' final words, because I didn't say the last verse. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A simple test. Where's your heart? Let me pray.